0: Well, Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. So thankful that you're here this morning. Uh, If we have not been properly introduced yet or you don't know me, uh, allow me to do that for you. Uh, My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus. And guys, I got to tell you, I am really excited that all of us are here together this morning because today we are launching into a brand new series, a five-week conversation that we are calling God Is Not. And I gotta tell you, I am especially pumped about what we're doing in this series precisely for like the aims or the big idea that we want to accomplish or the big thing that we want to accomplish throughout this series. And so actually right out of the gate, without further ado, I'm going to lay all the cards out on the table. Guys, this is what we are looking to aim for or to accomplish throughout this series. What we're looking to do is we are looking to establish a clearer portrait of God, a clearer view or or a clearer vision of God, and we're looking to do that together. So throughout this series, what we're going to be doing is asking questions like, who is God? What is God like? And things like, can I know with absolute certainty and clarity that the God of the Bible is real and that what the Bible says about him is true. And we think this is really important precisely because there's one thing I know about you and there's one thing I know about me when it comes to uh, our views of God, is that every single one of us, for one reason or another, comes to the Bible with certain assumptions about the nature and the character of God, certain assumptions about who God is and what he is like. So we come to the Bible with these assumptions. I think we know this, right? Well, sometimes we get these assumptions from experiences that we've had in our past. Maybe we went through a really difficult experience, or maybe there's something in our past that we had to wrestle with that, man, when we thought about it, either consciously or subconsciously, man, from that experience, we drew some dotted lines toward God and said, well, God, in light of my experience and what happened to me, well, God must be like this, For some of us, we derive our assumptions about God from authors that we have read and that we respect. Maybe they have a particular philosophical opinion about who God is that we appreciated and we adopted that, and so we bring those assumptions to the table when we read the Bible. And then for others of us, and I think this might actually be most of us, uh, there are a lot of people in our past when we were young, man, that we really looked up to. And again, whether they overtly said it or not, or whether it was from what we observed in the way that they acted, man, a lot of times we'll take the views and the assumptions or the opinions about God from people that we looked up to, we'll adopt those, and then again, we come to the Bible with these assumptions. And here's also something that we know, is that not all assumptions are created equal. We, we, we know this. We have figures of speech that we have developed in our culture and in our language, like, you know what happens when you assume, right? <laughs> yeah, and if you don't know how to finish that statement, just ask a snarky friend of yours, and they'll be sure to finish that statement for you. So we all know this about assumptions, and think about just what the smallest misunderstanding or the smallest assumption can do, when played out over the course of time, think about the potentially or the tremendously harmful or negative consequences or results that can come from one simple little tiny bad assumption. Like the time in my own past when I was rotating the tires on my wife's car. So I brought this thing down off the jack and right when I was going to the last tire, I got distracted a bit and I forgot to tighten the bolts on that tire, on that wheel well. And so naturally, my wife, when she turns the key in the ignition, she backs out of the driveway, maybe rightly, but still it's an assumption. She assumes that her husband's not an idiot and that, and that he actually tightened the bolts on these things. Fortunately enough, as Sarah was going down the road, she heard kind of like the sound and she knew something wasn't quite right. And she, she went off to the side of the road and we discovered that it was because her idiot husband had not tightened those bolts, but think about it. Man, one small little assumption, one small little misunderstanding, man, when played out over the course of time, could have had tremendously devastating consequences for my wife and for my family. And so similarly, when we think about God, it's, it's like that, but I think it's actually on a grander, like more cosmic scale of importance, So guys, this is why I'm so excited about this series. This is why this series is so essential, so necessary for us, because we have to figure out what negative assumptions or what misunderstandings we have about God as we bring them to the Bible. And then our goal and our effort has to be to go to the Bible for a clearer, more accurate picture of God. And so the natural question in light of that, in light of what we're doing in this series, the big aim is, well, okay, how would we go about doing that? Or what's like the pathway that we would take <clears throat> to get there? Well, as our team was developing this series a little bit, I think we've come up with a really helpful and useful analogy to kind of depict what we're or how we're going to do this or the path that we're going to take. And so what I want you to do is I want you to think about a photograph for a second. How does a photograph or how does a picture work? And I'm talking specifically about the non-digital variety of photographs with that, those, that vintage or that analog feel. <clears throat> so how does a picture work? Well, essentially, when you take a picture, you're letting varying degrees of light inside a camera lens, and that light then burns or it scores an image onto a photosensitive material. And then you take that material, that film, as they call it, and then when you take it into the dark room, something called a negative is produced. Now, the negative is the exact or the precise opposite of the event that you want to recapture in the developed photograph. And so what's necessary to get a good photograph is to have a super clear and accurate negative. In other words, the more accurate the negative, the more clearer the photograph will be. And so similarly, in this series, that's the approach that we want to take. We want to say that it's not only important, it certainly is, but it's not only important that we have clear statements about who God is we also need to know like a negative precisely what God is not so that we might be able to address and dismiss some of those bad assumptions that we bring to the table about God and learn afresh of this great portrait that the Bible gives us on who God is and what He is like. So again, that's what we're gonna do in this series and here's how we're gonna go about doing that. Actually, in the five weeks of the series, we are gonna look at one chapter in the Bible, just one chapter. And that chapter has a total of six verses, one chapter, six verses, and that is Psalm 23. And what we're looking to do again in Psalm 23 is dive in to see an accurate picture of God to dispel the negative assumptions that we might have about him. And each week in this series, what we're gonna do is we are going to finish the statement, we're gonna fill in the blank, God is not, and we're gonna fill in that blank there in some various ways. And so today, what I hope is uh, to have this kind of be like an introduction for us all to get ourselves a little bit more familiarized with what Psalm 23 has to say. And so my hope and my dream is to draw a couple conclusions today that will then help us as we set out this course throughout the rest of the series to grab a hold of a clear, vibrant, and helpful vision of God. All right? So without further ado, if you brought your Bible or if you got your Bible on your tablet or device, I'd like to invite you to begin making your way out to Psalm 23 right now. You can also follow uh, along the screen with me here. I'll have the text up here. <clears throat> and if you see the black Bibles under the seats in front of you, you can grab a hold of that Bible, should you, should you like. And it'll be on page 382 in those Bibles. But real quick, real quick, I want your attention here, real quick. I have some instructions for you before you actually get to Psalm 23, okay? So if you were Speedy Gonzalez, hold on a second, right? Ready? When you get to Psalm 23, I want you to look down at the Psalm and then I want you to immediately look back up at me, immediately, okay? So don't read any of the words on the page. Can we do that? Audience participation is, in, is encouraged. Can we do that? Yes. All right. I knew 11 o'clock service was da bomb, right? So, all right. So why you're like, okay, why is this lunatic who can't tighten the bolts on his wife's tire in the car. Why, why is this lunatic asking me to look down and then immediately look up? Well, I think, guys, there is something about the form or the visual structure that this passage takes that is gonna give us a massive clue on how we can read this passage really, really well, okay? And now you're asking me as the lunatic... <laughs> What does he mean by form or visual structure or shape of the text? Well, let me illustrate this for you here for a second. <clears throat> this is going to be good. But I put this text up on the screen here for you, okay? What are some observations that you have about this text? Yeah, it's blurry. That's right, because I don't want you to read the words. So, but observations are the structure and the layout, right? It's rectangular. Agree with that? Rectangular. All the lines are of equal length. And there's not a lot of white space, is there? And what white space exists, like in the margins and in the paragraph breaks, kind of exists to point and refocus your attention on the text itself, right? All right, now compare this, just visually, structurally speaking, compare this with this guy over here. Well, now it's something very different, isn't it? We've got a lot of white space, We've got lines that are not equal to each other. They vary in length. And it seems to be that each of these lines are kind of coupled together with one another. Now, let me ask the question. We go back over here to my right, your left, with this text. Based upon just what we see here and the way that it's structured and laid out, what are we reading? What are we reading? Well, some of you are thinking narrative, right? Some of you are thinking like maybe a newspaper article, a recounting of an event that actually occurred in history or in time, like narrative. Or some of you might've said, we're reading a story, right? And so you literary nerds out there, you guys call this form prose. All right, everybody say that with me, ready? Prose, right, audience participation, I love it, right? So literary nerds call this prose. Now, my question is, coming over here, based upon just the structure visually that this takes, guys, what are we reading? Poetry, you got it. You knocked it out of the park. A plus in your AP English literature class, right? So now the big reveal, ready? Look down at Psalm 23. Guys, what are we reading here? Poem, we're reading poetry. Poetry. And so for some segment of the room, I actually know all the artsy-fartsy types that are out here today. Because as soon as we started talking in the language of poetry, all of you, I, can, I know who you are now. You gave yourself away. Like you leaned forward in your chairs. You gave me a big smile and your eyes got really wide. And the rest of us in the room, which I would say is the vast majority of us, we all gave me the look that like, I just wanna stand up and walk out and get a cup of coffee. Like, I'm out, no more, right? And so I've gotta confess something to you guys. Um, I fall in the latter category. I am not, in all honesty, I am not a fan of poetry. Um, I just remember being in high school English classes and anytime my teachers asked us to read guys like Walt Whitman or Langston Hughes, I just throw my head up in the air, close my eyes and give a grunt like, oh, this sucks, right? And, and so here's the question. For those of you that are like me, that are not really into poetry. What is it about poetry that we find so detestable? What is it about poetry? Like it's just icky, ew, I can't, I don't like it. And the question for all you creative weirdos out there who like it, how in the world do you find so much meaning and significance out of such silly language, like roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet and so are you. Just get to the point. What are you talking about using all this flowery garbage? Just let me know what you want me to know. Now for those of us that do ask our creative friends in the room as to why we detest poetry so much, like I actually think that there is, as I was thinking about this a little bit more, I think there is a pretty simple answer as to why many of us really have a distaste for poetry, okay? And I think it's really simple. You see, prose, for the most part, is straightforward communication. It is mostly function and almost no flair. You use prose when you desire to get your point across by using raw facts, raw data, raw information, right? And it focuses on your brain. It focuses on a series of propositions that you're supposed to know and it keeps you connected in your brain. Like, I know something about rather than otherwise. Now, what about poetry? Well, poetry, poetry is different. It uses exaggerated, flowery, metaphorical language. And it often uses Key literary devices like rhythm and rhyme. And it invites you actually to use more than just your brain. It actually invites you to use all of yourself in connecting with its contents. Now, some of you are still fuzzy on this. One more illustration, and then we're going to Psalm 23. Let's just say I wanted to communicate to you <clears throat> an event that happened in my, in my life. Now, I could do that in one of two different ways. The first way, I could say this. I got a gift card to Chipotle for my birthday, and I was very happy. Fact, right? You guys now know something about me, and I've actually given you a little bit of a bonus for pros. I let you know that I felt something. But I could actually communicate this in a very, very different way. On the eve of 38, in the envelope was sealed my fate. Within the wrapping, white and thin, what could it be contained therein? Like an exodus from confined tent, my fingers tore bonds of cement. Up out, I cried with quick and with hurried pace, my heart's quick beat released in haste. Emerged the red and silver shape as with parades of ticker tape. Victorious, my soul released from its stay. a meal to nourish, Chipotle. Good. It's excellent. You know, I didn't expect it. I kind of expected a laugh, but in every service, I got an applause. So thank you very much for that. I don't like poetry, but that's good. You can nominate me for Poet Laureate of the Medina East Campus later. It's totally fine. But... Here's the thing, for some of us in this room that don't like poetry, you were like, get to the point. Why did you need to go through all that rigmarole? Just tell me you got the darn gift card and then let me know that it made you happy and let's be on our merry way. But my question to you is, what have I done by using or employing poetry that I could not do by simply stating in a prose-like way that I got a gift card and was happy? Yeah, emotional response. Response, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Right. What I've done is I have invited you into something deeper. I've I've not invited you just to use your brain to know something about me. I have extended an invitation and an opportunity for you to know at a deeper level, to connect with me in a deeper way, that you might be able to feel emotionally with your whole being in a similar way as I did when I received the gift card. So here's the thing. Why am I telling you all this? Well, I think we've got to get something down here before we continue our conversation today or before we move forward throughout the rest of this series. Here's what we have to get, is that God's story of salvation his movement to come be with us and to rescue us and restore us, rescue us from sin and bring us into life with him forever, that story as it's told in the Bible is not a documentary. It's not a documentary. It's a musical. It's more like a musical. And poetry, when we encounter it in the Bible, is like the songs in that musical. It's verbal art that invites us and asks us to slow down and tells us that we might just be invited into a whole person kind of experience, invited into something where we use more than just our brains and maybe invited into something where we can use and employ and invest every part of us. And so this guy, King David, who lived over 3,000 years ago, and who writes Psalm 23, what he writes here, we got to get this going in. What he writes here is not just a recounting of his own experiences. Instead, he's extending to us an invitation to slow down and discover an experience that you and I might be able to have right here, right now, today. So, We're going to read Psalm 23 together, and and I'm just going to read it in a little bit of a different way than we might normally read it. I'm going to slow down a little bit. What I want you to do is I want you to just allow this text to wash over you a little bit. And then what we'll do is we'll make just a couple high-level observations that will hopefully, again, set us up for where we're going in the rest of this series. All right, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, we just ask you that as we engage in this psalm, that you would help us to get out of our heads a little bit, to receive what you want us to receive, to yes, know about this psalm, but ultimately to see that we're invited into an experience. Father, we know we need your Holy Spirit to guide us in that. So help us to just have our hearts open and ready to receive what you have to say in this psalm. Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's make a couple high-level observations about this psalm as we prepare for the next series. Now, first thing you need to know about Psalm 23 is that it is broken up into two distinct parts, and each part has its own unique governing metaphor. So you look at verses one through fours, part one, it has the metaphor of a shepherd leading his sheep. And then that transitions into another metaphor in part two in verses five and six, and it casts God as this gracious banquet host who, uh, who has David as his honored guest. And it's kind of like a victory celebration or a victory party that God is throwing for David as his honored guest. So let's take a look at the first metaphor for a second as we walk through. And we have this in the topic sentence here in verse one. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. So this first metaphor of God leading David as a shepherd would lead a sheep. So two things you need to know about shepherds in ancient cultures. The role of shepherds in ancient cultures was primarily uh, exercised in two ways. The first was that shepherds were responsible for guiding their sheep for helping them navigate through the sheep's life and the paths that the sheep needed to take to get to the right destination. So shepherds were charged with guiding, but they were also charged with protection. So shepherds would protect from wolves or other thieves because sheep were a commodity in that culture in that day. And so not only would shepherds protect from thieves and wolves, but also sometimes paths would lead up really high mountains with steep cliffs. And so the shepherd would also protect in their leadership and ensure the sheep would not fall off to their demise or to their death. And so right off the bat here, you see that David is employing this language of this aspect of guidance, of a shepherd guiding their sheep. What does he say? The shepherd, God, is the one who makes me lie down. He leads me beside, he guides me along. So even in the language that David is using in this metaphor, he's like saying, listen guys, listen up. Like The Lord is the one that helps guide me through every moment in life. He puts me on the right path to the good life that he wants for me. Like I could go in search of the good path and the right way from a host of other sources, but that would be ridiculous. David is saying that because every time when I've banked on God, when I've trusted him and his leadership and his guidance in my life, God has never steered me wrong. And he always brings me and leads me into places that are for my benefit, they're for my good, even at great cost to the shepherd, he always leads me into places where I can flourish, where I can do life and so we even see this, as David says, he makes me lie down in these places he calls green pastures, and the, or the Lord leads me beside, he says, still waters. Now, think of the imagery here for a second. Green pastures, lush pastures, rich and fertile pastures, and quiet waters. What are these? But the pastures are the food that sheep would eat for nourishment, so that they could go on the journey the next day. What are the waters but the the water that the sheep would drink so that they could be sustained for that same journey and be led the next day and the following day and the following day. So what we have here, food and water, these are the basic essentials that, that a sheep needs for life, for the good life. And so likewise, David says, when the Lord leads me into these kinds of places, I mean, the Lord gives me the essentials of what I need when I follow his leadership in my life, he gives me every one of the essentials that I need to exist and to live in the quality of life that he wants for me. And again, I love this picture too, because David describes the sheep as lying down in green pastures and lying down beside quiet waters. Now, if you know anything about sheep, when they eat and when they drink, they don't do it lying down. They always do it standing up. And so what we have here is a picture of a sheep lying down in his own food because there's so much plenty, there's so much sustenance and the sheep is so overwhelmingly satisfied by the good nourishing things that he's been led into that he's just lying down in his own food. Guys, men, this is the equivalent of like taking a bath and Dr. Pepper. That's the equivalent. Or it's like the equivalent of laying your head down on a pillow made of bacon. Like, this is what we're talking about. You have such an overabundance of something that you're so overwhelmingly satisfied, you cannot help but rest in the middle of your provision. This is fantastic. And so David then kind of summarizes. I love what he does here in this verse. In this line, he says, the Lord is the one. He refreshes my soul. Now this is good, but if you press it back into the original language, probably a better translation, a more rigid translation, would be to translate it like this: "He turns my life around." <laughs> it's good. He turns my life around." And so David is giving us this impression, like, "Hey guys, listen up. Man. In my past, in my experience, I tried to find the good life on my own. I went every way, this way, and that. I tried to forge out this good life with my own power and in my own strength, but the only thing I ever got at the end of the day, the only destination that it dropped me off toward was despair, frustration, and death. But David says, man, oh, when I connected with God, When I connected with the Lord, he took me from that trajectory and he turned my life right around. And so David gives us some wise advice for living. He says, man, guys, listen, drop the machete. (laughs) Let go of the strain of trying to forge a path to the good in life under your own power and in your own strength. Buy into the Lord's agenda. Connect with him. He will turn your life right around. I love how David continues here in this psalm. He moves on to acknowledge that just because we walk and are led and are guided by the Lord in life or for those that do, just because we follow the Lord's leading in life doesn't mean we don't go through some really tough stuff, some really difficult circumstances, circumstances that sometimes are so intense that we might be tempted to bail to remove ourselves from underneath the guidance and the protection of the Lord. But David is saying, man, don't do that. Don't do it. Why? He says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, even though there are going to be times where things are tough and it feels like I'm just headed back down the pathway to death and despair, but even though the times are tough, the Lord is there to guide me and to protect me in those circumstances, and not remove me from them, but fortify me and sustain me and lead me with care so that I can navigate right through that difficult situation in life and out the other side into life and into freedom and into the good things that God wants for me. And David says, your rod, Lord, your staff, they comfort me. In other words, God has every tool necessary that's at his disposal to ensure that we can navigate the rough terrain of the twists and turns of life really well and be brought to a great destination of life with God forever. And that life with God forever is actually what's behind the twist of metaphor as we go into verse 5. Again, this new metaphor is God as a gracious banquet host who is lavishing good things on a victorious David. So in the first metaphor, God is leading and guiding and protecting David. But in this last one, David is saying, man, and God one day is going to bring me into the great destination where I get to dwell in the house of the Lord. I get to be with God forever and experience the kind of victorious life that God wants for me. And again, this is cast in a victory party. Now, but you notice something here in this victory party. This is not your ordinary winner-takes-all victory party. You notice this? So normally in a victory party, when we win, we invite all our friends over We party, we eat, and then we troll the losers on Facebook and Instagram, don't we? (laughs) But notice this. Where are the losers? Where are David's opponents? Where are the losers as David dines with the Lord? (laughs) This is cold. (laughs) They're right there. They're just watching David dine with God. This victorious David dining with God. They're just, David's like, bro, watch me eat, like, watch me eat, now pass the mayonnaise, watch me eat, eat, now pass the mayonnaise. I know it was two years too late, I get it, but I had to throw that one in there, just had to. But actually, David doesn't need to say anything to these guys. His victory is so complete, He's dining in relationship with God forever. His victory is so complete, he doesn't need to say a single thing. And so this is what's presented to us throughout Psalm 23, is we have done this freeway fast version of looking at this psalm. That what it tells us is that when someone buys into God and his agenda for life, God will personally lead them and guide them, He will protect them, get them through difficulty, and that one day God promises that those who follow him will dwell with him forever. So that's it? Is that that all we got? And if that's the case, how are we going to stretch this thing out for five weeks? That's what I want to know. Now, here's the thing. I think we could easily miss something that's so vitally important to understand about what's happening in this psalm, something that in this psalm is not overtly stated, that David does not come out and say it, but it's assumed throughout, and it shows up everywhere. It lies underneath the surface, but it's so vibrant, and it creates the foundation for all the other statements that we're going to make about what God is not in this series. And I'm gonna make this statement to you. It's actually our first statement in the series that's gonna create the foundation for the rest is that in this psalm, underneath it all, God is not indifferent. Some of you need to hear that. God's not aloof. God is not unconcerned with what you are facing today and what consumed your thoughts as you rode into the Medina East Campus this morning. God is not indifferent. It's not like God is some force that's out there that glues some stuff together and then asks us as human beings to figure out what this life is and what the good life might be on our own. No, God is not indifferent. He's not far off. He's personal. Did you get that? God is personal. Personal God. We have to see this because David, again, is trying to get us to see that you don't just connect with this psalm with your head. That this is not a series of propositional statements in this song about God that if we just knew a little bit more about God, we'd be good to go. No, David is inviting us into an experience. David says, man, It's not just that God leads, guides, protects, and brings me to the destination, but that that experience is available to you and to me in life in the 21st century right here and right now. Not a bunch of statements about God, but an invitation to know this great God who loves us. And so again, if we read this song, this is why we went through poetry as much as we did. See, because if we read this psalm only as a a series of fact statements, we might as well start another series next week because we've got it. We know what Psalm 23 is about. But see, what's presented here is not only simply that God is personal, but that you and I might be connected and engaged day to day in the little things in life that we care about and we're concerned with, that we might connect with God personally, ourselves. Uh, Some of these facts really hit home for me uh, last week. Uh, Last week, my family was on vacation. And uh, one of the days, we decided to go to an amusement park with some roller coasters. Our family is a big fan of roller coaster amusement park stuff. And another thing you need to know is about two weeks prior to that, my son uh, turned seven years old. And so my son, knowing that we were going to go to an amusement park, I think he'd started to stir in him like, oh, I have gone from a six-year-old boy to a seven-year-old man with facial hair, because apparently that's what you think when you turn to seven years old, now that I get it. So he's thinking, I think, I wanna, I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready to do this roller coaster thing. Now, prior to him turning seven and becoming a man, um, he had seen his mom and dad, my my wife and I, ride these roller coasters before. Ride plenty of them. So he's he's watched us ride them, and then he's experienced us come off the roller coaster and say things like, "Oh man, what a thrill! That was awesome! Like that first corkscrew twist, we went. It felt like my stomach landed in my feet for a few seconds." And so, armed with these kind of observations, Caleb pulls me aside a couple days before we get ready to go to the amusement park. And in the deepest voice, a seven-year-old man can muster. He just looks at me and he goes, Dad. I sounded exactly like that. I kid you not. Like, Dad. I'm ready. (laughs) Dad. (laughs) I just want to keep saying it. I'm ready. And so honestly, I had to turn away for a second. First, I laughed. And then I like had to wipe a little tear out of my eye. Little guy's ready. You know, he's, he's a seven-year-old man now, facial hair coming out. So I was like, oh, buddy, you know, you're, you're ready. Okay, you ready to ride the coasters? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm ready. And so we get to the amusement park, and uh, we finally get in line for the first coaster. And we thought, my wife and I said, well, why don't we ease this kid into the coaster life? And so we decided to take him on one of those log rides, So, which is really not a coaster. It's like you get in a boat and you float for a couple minutes and then you go down one big hill. So let's ease the kid into this. So we're like, buddy, ready to go on the log ride? Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. So we get in line and we're waiting in line. And I'm just kind of watching him the whole time. And I can see there's hesitation that's starting to creep up on this kid because he's doing things like this. He's cocking his head back and forth like, and then he's rolling his shoulders a little bit like, yeah, okay, I'm getting loose. You know, I'm going to do this. And so finally we get to the front of the line after waiting for a bit, and uh, the boat or the car or whatever starts floating down, and then it docks right in front of us, and I watch him. He takes a deep breath. He inhales. He exhales. He steps into the boat, and then immediately steps out onto the exit platform, <laughs> Immediately. He's <laughs> a 5 four. and for the next minute, I kid you not, which felt like an eternity, because as a parent, you're you're watching your kid do this, and there's 600 other people behind you, like, get your kid together, bro. Like he starts throwing this massive fit, screaming like somebody's been stabbing him for a couple minutes. Like, I don't want to go. I don't want to do it. No, 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 I don't want to do it. No. It's exactly like this. Like somehow his voice went from really deep to I don't want to go. And like, I couldn't, I'm trying to calm the kid down. And after a little while, trying to calm him down, I just threw him in the water. No, I didn't really, but, but <clears throat> I wanted to. I, let me tell you that, I wanted to. So uh, after, after a bit, the attendants came over, and they're like, listen, sir, here's what we can do. Why don't you ride with your two daughters? We'll let you ride, and when it comes back around, you could switch with your wife, and your wife can ride with your two daughters as well. So everything calmed down, but I tell you what, while I walked away from that thinking, man, Caleb knows a lot about what a roller coaster could be. But he walked away without having experienced the thrill of riding a roller coaster. And you see, I think for many of us, just honest, I think we approach life with a personal God in a very similar way. I think we do. Because we have the stories of the adventure that comes from a loving God who wants to be personally involved in every aspect of our lives. Personally involved, like wanting to know what are my fears? What are my anxieties? What's the tough thing that's staring me in the face that I'm agonizing over? What are my dreams? What is the vision for me? What are my hopes? What do I hope to accomplish in this life? What do I hope to pass on to my kids? What legacy do I hope to leave? All these things, these little details of the twists and turns of life, we have the stories of a God who makes himself so available to personally interact with us and lead us and guide us in all of those things. But I tell you what, we miss the point. If we walk away from Psalm 23 with a bunch of propositions about God, like hearing from David about what a thrill this adventurous life with God is and yet never riding that roller coaster. And you see, I think our assumptions, these negative assumptions that we have about God, they influence this They influence this, and I think those negative assumptions for many of us, they create this condition or this syndrome that begins to exist inside of us when we think about God and his personality or the fact that he wants to be personal. And I actually call this syndrome that we have something called functional atheism, functional atheism. Atheism is don't believe in God. Functional is like I act like I don't believe in God and I'll I'll define it like this, functional atheism is believing in a personal God, a personal God who's always around and who longs to guide us in the adventure, longs to know the detail, longs to walk with us and be present and show himself in a face-to-face kind of relational interaction with us, a personal God who's always around and longs to guide us in this adventure, yet living day to day like he doesn't exist, or or this. Or maybe we just get duped into the lie that he is too indifferent to care about me and what's happening in my life and my cares and my concerns and what I'm going through. Honestly, guys, I know that functional atheism runs deep in me. I was confronted by this functional atheism afresh this week as I began preparing for talking to you guys today. Began preparing Psalm 23. Guys, what do you think, what do you think is the first thing that I did when I began preparing for this message? The first thing I did. I'll tell you what I did. With all my seminary training and knowledge, all my professors saying, here's how you interpret a text of scripture, Here's how you get the point of the text. I dove into this thing like crazy. I went behind the English into the original language. I'm so I was so nerdy that I made my own translation. Okay? Like I dove into this thing, I looked at every verb, I parsed it, I figured out different ways the text could poetically interact with itself. I, I, I treated this thing like a mathematical equation, and like a welder going at it, like sparks are flying. And at the end of the day, after two days of investing myself so wholeheartedly in an academic exercise, I sat back in my chair and I literally told myself, I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing. Why? What's well, simple. All of us just walked through Psalm 23 together. We know what it says. I, I understand the interpretation. I know what I should believe about God. Again, i asked ask myself, how are we going to stretch this thing into five weeks? And in that moment, something clicked. And I just, I believe that it was God's spirit at work. Something clicked and I thought, oh my gosh, (laughs) this is poetry. This is not a text to be mastered. It's not a text to be mastered. It's an invitation to experience something that David is telling us is available to us. It's an experience with a personal God who longs to be with us, in the twists and the turns of life, longs to communicate with us and us back with him. And all God is asking me to do, all he's asking me to do is to lean more of myself into that relationship and realize, man, day to day, God cares. He's concerned. He longs to guide me, to protect me through the tough stuff and get me to the great goal that he has of life with him forever. See, some of us, as you're hearing uh, this in this room, some of you are not followers of Jesus, meaning you've never put that stake in the ground moment and said, you know, I wanna be led by the good shepherd. I wanna be led by God. I wanna be led by Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, you are operating on that assumption because you have seen plenty of cases in your life of functional atheists like me. And maybe you've seen functional atheism at work And the only word that you have to describe that in your vocabulary is the word hypocrisy, hypocrisy. Like you say you believe in a personal God that cares about you, but you live like it's your life and not his. Now listen, if that's you, if your assumption was developed from watching functional atheists like me, I have two things that I just wanna respond to you with. Number one, I'm sorry. That's all I can say. I'm sorry. The reality is that, yes, I'm dealing with it. I'm struggling with it. I need my life to align more with the reality of what my head tells me after I read the God who speaks to me in scripture. But just understand that Christ followers are are looking to deal with the functional atheism that exists in every single one of us. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But the second response that I have to you in light of that is, just because your view of God has been shaped by functional atheism, by functional atheists, I need to tell you this today. like, It does not mean God's offer to you of personal relationship to help you navigate the twists and the turns of life and to get you to that great destination. It doesn't mean that offer is revoked or that it's off the table. It's right there. Because God has shown himself to be personal in the most extreme way by sending his son, Jesus. God taking on human skin so that he could relate to us in a personal way. Jesus himself says this in John 10, 14 through 15. He says, I'm the good shepherd. In other words, Psalm 23 is about me. I am the God that longs to lead you and guide you in life he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, right? Not just my sheep know about me in a series of statements that's collected and kept in the brain, but they know me in relationship with all that they are. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So the reality is if you are not a follower of Jesus in this room and God right now by his spirit is moving you, that that's a Bad assumption that functional atheism is not right and that God wants to lead you personally. I just got to tell you, all you have to do is just say yes. Man, just hand your life over. Surrender your life to the Good Shepherd. Quit trying to carve out the path on your own terms and in your own power. He can turn your life around in that way and lead you into freedom and victory. He can do that. Just say yes. Yes. And then if you can, please grab a Connect card in the seat back in front of you. Just let us know you did that. We wanna celebrate with you and resource you. And then come back for this series as we continue in it next week and dig into this personal God who loves you and cares for you. And then finally, for those of us that profess to be Christ followers in this room, if you are a follower of Jesus and you are confronted as I am and was with the reality and the depths of our functional atheism, I just need to tell you that the antidote or the remedy to functional atheism is not about trying harder or doing all the right things. It's actually quite the opposite. Inasmuch as Jesus presents himself to those who aren't his followers as the good shepherd in invitation, he also presents himself to his followers as the good shepherd. Buy into me more by faith. Dig in attached to the rhythms of relationship that are offered to you. Things like prayer, man, sometimes we find it so difficult to pray, but what is prayer but grabbing a hold of the personal avenue of expressing ourselves to God, our hopes, our fears, our dreams, our struggles. First Peter says that we can cast our cares on Jesus because he cares for us. So we have prayer. We have God speaking back to us as we engage Him in Scripture. We have community, other sheep, other followers of Jesus who are trying to deal with their own functional atheism together to follow the leading, the guiding, and the protection of Jesus and into the great destination He has for all of God's people. The bottom line is wherever you're at, whether you're not a Christ follower and you're challenged, or whether you are and you want to be led out of functional atheism, we've got to get a hold of this fact as we head forward in this series that above all else, Psalm 23 says that God is not indifferent, He is personal. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the reality of Psalm 23 as we are confronted by it today, as we read it, as we engaged in it. And God, uh, as silly as it might sound, I wanna thank you that you have given us communication means like poetry to show us that you're personal, that, that we don't have to just read a Bible in black and white, this stale words on a page kind of approach for, that was for some people 3,000 or thousands of years ago. But that with these means, and in Psalm 23, you're, you're inviting us to hear from you in your word in living color. And God, that you're inviting us into the relationship and an acknowledgement afresh. That you're personal. God, that we make the statement, you're not indifferent, you're personal, which means you care, which means you long to be involved in the minutia of our lives the little decisions that we think are too inconsequential or that we wouldn't want to burden you with as the transcendent God that rules over all. Man, that same transcendent God, who you are, you're so personal and you affect all things concerning us. Jesus, help us, regardless of where we're at or what station in life we are presently in, whether we're challenged, we're not a follower of you, but we're challenged in this moment to grab a hold of your hand by faith and be led by you, or whether we're people who are functional atheists who are looking to get rid of it and be led by you. Help us in this time as we worship and as we sing together, that your spirit would do something in our hearts to ignite us in response, to maybe put a stake in the ground regardless of where we're at to say, I wanna follow you because I know that you're not indifferent. I know that you care for me. I know that you're personal. I know that you long to lead me through the twists and the turns of life. Father, thank you that you are that way and that you're good and that our good is always at the forefront of your mind when you act. God, be with us as we make those micro decisions and adjustments in terms of response to you today. Help us to see that we are invited to experience you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.